Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Well, there's been a lot of talk about this, hasn't there? Uh, the government, uh, what the government is calling the country's largest ever emissions reduction project. New Zealand Steel's Glenbrook plant will install an electric arc furnace, halving its coal use. New Zealand Steel employs 4,000 people and makes around 670,000 tonnes of steel every year for products that include roofing and structural beams. Announced yesterday, the company will receive up to $140 million from the government investment in decarbonising industry fund. That's the Giddy Fund. Essentially a uh, polluter pay scheme. The government says the project means that 800,000 tonnes of pollution can be removed from the atmosphere every year, uh, the equivalent of taking 300,000 cars off the road. So it's seen as the biggest ever climate announce, or is it just a big subsidy? With us is the Sustainable Business Council Executive Director, Mike Burrell. Kia ora, Mike. Kia ora, how are you? Good, thank you. So alone, this is going to eliminate 1% of the country's total annual emissions do you think it's as big a deal as the government is making out? Well, it's an election year, so everything's going to be a big deal. But um, it is a big deal. Um, I mean, if you look at it out over the next, say, seven years, so part of this so-called budget cycle for uh, for emissions reduction, it's over 5%, 5.3% reduction, and then another 3.2% odd for the following decade. Those are pretty significant numbers when you think about how far New Zealand's going to go on this stuff. So, yeah, no, it's a big deal. And steel is everywhere, is it not? You know, we use it to make houses, pipes, bridges, office buildings. We use around uh, nudging 700,000 tonnes of it everywhere, every year. So uh, that reduction will, uh, well, it'll be everywhere, won't it? It will be, it will be. And it's um, one of these things which is really difficult to sort out from. Obviously, um, you know, wood has a role to play. And there's, there's other materials, but for the for at least for the next 50 years, old steel is going to be a really important material. So, uh, like it or not, New Zealand's going to need to have steel in its uh, economy. The question is, what kind of steel? And if we don't take this action, then we're going to just have to import steel and we'll have no control over whether it's low-emission steel or high-emission steel. Now, in terms of, before we get to the panel, in terms of this issue of, I mean, because the opposition sees this, they say, look, this is corporate welfare going to a large, profitable, private company. Mike, could they, considering their parent company is pretty profitable, could they have not done this um, without government Input. Well, obviously, I haven't been part of the deal, so I don't know the answer to that question. But I suppose if I just take a step back and look at why it is that we do this in the first place, why is it that there is a role for um, for government funding? And really what it comes down to is that ring-fenced funding that comes out of the Emissions Trading Scheme. And the idea behind that is a very simple one, which is that the Emissions Trading Scheme has two purposes. One is to raise the price of carbon so that people are incentivised to take action to decarbonise. And the second is, is that you take the proceeds from that and you reinvest them again to take action in areas which are hard to decarbonise. Now, our view, when we put this in our pre-election brief, is that um, steel is in the hard to decarbonise area. You need to do it at some stage. And our argument would be, do it now. When, uh, when it's relatively cheap to do so. Do it now while you've got the funding to do so coming out of the ETS. Um, 
there's been a lot of small projects come out of that Getty Fund. This is the first large one, and I understand why people would be concerned because it is a lot of money, $140 million. It is. But when you stand back and look at $140 million and think about, well, uh, how much is it going to cost us if we don't do this, we, we get caught in two horns of the dilemma, really, there. One is if we don't do it, then um, the cost of carbon is just going to keep going up, and so it's going to get more expensive to do. The second is, of course, that... Uh, we are part of a, a trading system which is now factoring in carbon into its, uh, into its trade deals. And if we don't move on this stuff, and we're still a high-carbon economy, um, we're going to find ourselves as not very competitive when it comes to trading. I see. All right. Uh, Ellie, Ellie Jones, let's bring you in. Um, I think it's good to see some courageous, tough decisions being made by the government. They're often damned if they do and damned if they don't. I do think it's disappointing politically to see National and Act dumping on this. I didn't hear them offer up any solutions when they were critical of it. Mike, I guess what I'd ask of you on this or ask you is that we're building Takaha here in Christchurch, the big stadium. And one Mm. of the things that councils and other organisations and entities do as they build these large infrastructural projects is they have to factor in the the carbonised material being used, what's been captured in it, because that's a big part of, you know, the, the plan moving ahead was, is this, uh, uh, you know, good for the climate or not. Now, the stuff mm. in Glenbrook, this is actually going to decarbonise what they're producing, right? So does that mean mm. that if, if say, Takaha uses the steel that Glenbrook is producing that is decarbonised, that's going to decarbonise and reduce their carbon footprint in the building of that? This is bigger than just Glenbrook is my question. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, we, we refer to it as scope three emissions. You know, um, when somebody else's emissions are reliant on yours, um, then those those become um, their scope three, your scope three emissions, whether that's downstream or upstream. And in this case, it would be downstream for Glenbrook. Um, so that's right. So if you um, are buying a product that's decarbonised, then that has an impact on your carbon footprint as well. These all, thing, all mm. these things are connected. And again, that's why looking at these areas where you can have a big big impact, the, the knock-on effects are quite con, uh, considerable. Now, I'm not saying that we should be doing this for everything, and I'm not saying that we should be subsidising indefinitely, but the truth of it is, is that we're in a, um, you know, a very serious situation here in New Zealand where we've allowed our carbon footprint to grow dramatically over the last 30 years, and as a result, we've got a lot of catching up to do. So, um, you know, some big steps are required to get us back on track. Right, Martin. Um, um, great questions. Um Mike's actually sort of answered the question that I had primarily, which was around the funding for this. Obviously, the National Act have come out and said this is taxpayers' money. Uh, and I was going to ask him to clarify that, it, it, that it's not taxpayers' money, is it, Mike? It, as you say, the, the funds are actually coming from the ETS scheme, the Giddy scheme, which is precisely what this money is for. Is that, is that, is that right? Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it's it's emitters' money, and yeah. so um, it's it's been set aside for that purpose. But again, I mean, I understand why um, you know people would would say that it's taxpayers' money. At, at the end of the day, it's uh, government spending on this, so I can see why that would be said. But that's why the ETS was set up. You know, the ETS was set up as um, you know a cap and trade scheme. It was set up to put a cap on carbon and drive that cap down, mm. so that over time the price of carbon would come up, so that people would move away. Um, from carbon-intensive industry or carbon-intensive activity, so that 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 was its purpose, right? Its stated purpose. And so, the, so, by, so by, sorry, so by capping it, we are actually bring we are reducing it down, so we do we do fall into line with the same reductions of our trading partners. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Now we can undermine that uh, by doing things like, for example, um, uh, subsidising fuel. 
And so one of the things that we've been saying is be consistent. You know, don't have an ETS on the one hand and then subsidise fuel on the other yeah, hand right. because you're actually undermining the ETS. So if you're going to have an ETS, then use all the tools at your disposal to make sure that it uh, works well. Um, but we're saying that that's not enough on its own. So if you look at the UK, and that's basically the model they're following because they've decarbonised very successfully, I've said we need a trading scheme, and they've got an equivalent, um, but that's not enough on its own okay. for the change that we need. I'm just looking at actually, we're, the panel is going to return later in the week to uh, uh, one of the other Giddy schemes, and the funded projects are, by comparison, extremely small compared to this, which is Mammoth. But, uh, for example, uh, Woolworks, um, uh, the, 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 they, they did a world-first decarbonisation of a New Zealand wool scouring plant. You've got a Kiwi crop company that are looking to lead the way in low-carbon produce, so you can eat your salads knowing they haven't been grown on coal-heated glass houses, and also um, Silver Fern Farms as well. In December of 2021, they they took um, part in a Giddy-funded project, sort of um, Silver Fern uh, wanting to, to reduce carbon emissions and saving money that way. So that's other examples there. Uh, just finally, Mike, um, you mentioned the UK. How are they uh, how are they going with their decarbonisation? Do you know? They've done pretty well up until now. Um, certainly yeah. they've reduced at a much faster rate than we have. Um, in some respects, that's because it's some of the areas that they've had to uh, reduce have been easier than ours. Um, you know, the farming systems are not easy to decarbonise. Um, but on, the main thing is is that their, um, their, their current government, their, um, uh, their Conservative government, took a position that they wanted to see a very significant reduction in emissions, and then they put in place what we've now got, which is a an independent uh, climate commission, they've got another name for it, and legislation, and and made some big big calls on where they would um, where where they would put their funding. Now, again, they're saying this is a temporary emergency response. This is not something that you want to do indefinitely, but you need a course correction here. And just like um, you know, uh, we wouldn't want to see um, any kind of subsidies going on indefinitely. But for, for course correction, they've, they've made the call that this is a, a something that will basically save the taxpayer in the, in the medium to long term. Because if you don't take action now, it just gets more expensive to do okay. it later. Very good, Mike Kiora. That's Mike Burrell there, uh, the Executive Director of the Sustainable Business Council. 18 past for the panel. Ali Jones and Martin Bosley with me this afternoon. Good to have your company. And another big news today and news in the Pacific region. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins is in Papua New Guinea, PNG, for just 23 hours for the United States Pacific Summit. Pacific Island Forum leaders uh, will meet with US Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Port Moresby later today. And earlier, Chris Hipkins held a media stand-up in Papua New Guinea, and here's a snippet of what he had to say on the subject of militarisation. New Zealand, you know, doesn't support militarisation of the Pacific. Having said that, uh, military presence does not necessarily signify militarisation. For example, New Zealand has a military presence in the Pacific regularly following natural disasters. So America's poised to sign a deal with PNG that may give the US Armed Forces unimpeded access to the island's nation's territorial waters and airspace. With us is Professor of International Law, Al Gillespie. He's been following this. Kia ora, uh, Al. Kia ora, Wallace. Uh, how big a deal is this? Well, it's part of the reset. I mean, we saw what happened with the Solomons, with the Chinese interest in that part of the world. The United States 
came back with they said they want to be part of the Pacific. You've been making deals with the Marshall Islands, which was a lot of money, seven hundred million. Now they've come in and they've got to deal with PNG as well. It's significant. Yeah. It shows they're engaged. Yeah, uh, and as you say, there was a similar agreement between China and the Solomon Islands last year, which the New Zealand government described as gravely concerning. I mean, what are we seeing here? The world's superpowers strong-arming their way into the our sphere? Yeah. They're definitely making an impact, and I don't think this is going to be the end of it. You've got to start watching for the, the more poorer countries in the region. So I think you may see some more work around Kiribati. You may see some stuff going around the Federated States of Micronesia. A lot of these places are effectively up for bidding right now, and some countries have put a lot of money into them. Places up for bidding, Ali Jones. That was my question, Al, is that this is just going to turn into a, an escalation of, of uh, pact and arrangements and agreements, isn't it? And at what point does it stop and does someone go too far to really throw the whole thing out of whack? It, it's an unsatisfactory situation. I mean, what you need is cooperative development for the sustainable goals of the region. And if you start getting more permanent military structures of any flavour, it does destroy its independence and it's a distraction for what the area actually needs. Mm. Martin. Mm, deeply concerning this, isn't it? That was very um, very cheery. Um, I mean, I, one of the things that, obviously that, that concerns me with this is um, that I've seen uh, firsthand is um, what's happening to um, the fishing within the Pacific. Uh, and, you know, we've sort of seen that push, especially from China coming through to sort of plunder the fishing grounds of some of these smaller nations. Do you think, I mean, that this has got a big part of, this, this movie has got a big part of, the, um, of that, of, the, of that desire to sort of take over resources by this, sort of this geopolitical shift that is, you know, coming from China and other places? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things going on. It's not just the defence pact. I mean, everyone's yeah. focusing on security. But the United States is doing a lot of good work giving them money for defence equipment, working on transnational crime, climate, and with regards to maritime security, they're now saying that they'll be helping out in the region to make sure that no illegal fishing does occur. But it does suggest that there'll be a more permanent footprint for the American Navy in that part of the world. Because fishing rights was uh, quite a big part uh, and one that opened eyes regarding that agreement between China and the Solomon Islands last year, am I right? Yeah, you are right. I, I mean, mm. people are very concerned about, about sovereignty and the maritime zones in particular. But, but it, it's not just the fish, it's also about the presence. But it starts off small and it may grow. The problem is we don't know. We haven't yet seen mm. the agreement and, and we're only speculating to what it may contain. Now, Al, what is the significance of another world power, India's Prime Minister um, Modi, being present well, this is unusual. I mean, Australia has been trying to make a deal with PNG, but, but they weren't present on the same scale as we are. So New Zealand's there, but with India there, it's possible that they're trying to have more of a reflection of the Indo-Pacific region, like through the Quad Alliance. And so India's now beginning to also show that it's interested in this part of the world. It's signalling that it matters. India's rise as a superpower, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and India is toe-to-toe with China on a number of issues yeah. as well. 
All right, Al, we'll watch the space, won't we, Hump? That's the Professor of International Law, Al Gillespie, there. Uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins uh, in Papua New Guinea for just uh, 23 hours for the United States Pacific Summit. Have either of you been to uh, any part of the Pacific Islands recently or in the last few years, Ellie Jones? Yeah, I, I I grew up in Suda and Fiji, so we go back a fair bit. Did you? And yeah, yeah, we were there just before it became independent. My father was working for the judiciary when it was still a colony. Um, so we and so I love going back because I love the music. It's been like going home. And I did notice there was uh, there was some Chinese presence there. Actually, I was seeing farms grown, irrigation having gone in, and it was being supported by. Chinese-named um, organisations, sort well, of, that's why of that I, in Indonesia. That's why I ask you, because uh, Fiji predominantly, but also Tonga, there is uh, there are a number of projects, say, not just by China, but there are some big highways, some some quite a big infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, put in, into Suva and around those areas, Ellie. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting you yeah. say that, because the last time we were there, which was only a few months ago, and before that it was about a year and a half ago, um, I've noticed over the last five to ten years a massive improvement in the infrastructure and the roading is, is key to that. So I've never asked anyone where's the money come from, but, yeah, you might be right. It's coming in from some of these superpowers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was in Niue not long ago, and um, you know, their, their fishing grounds through there have almost been fished out. Uh, in fact, I was there doing, oh. you know, I was there doing an event, and, and, uh, and seafood was a part of my menu. Uh, and I had to take my own seafood in because they weren't what? sure they'll be able. To, yeah, they, they weren't sure they were going to be able to provide. You had to sea- take your yeah, own seafood into Niue. Se- yeah, to, into Niue because they weren't sure they were going to be able to catch the fish themselves Gosh. for the dinner because they're just it's just not there anymore. It's just been it's been fished out and yeah. And they're saying you know again it's um yeah we need we need to we need to be really careful and I think you know we, we talk about those those roads and. Fiji being you know, so beautiful, and, and that's done for one reason. That's just to get product to the airport and the mm. shipping lanes quicker, faster mm. than over a rickety, bumpety road. Is, has um, that been? Can I just come back? Is that a concern amongst the locals you talk to? Uh, the uh, the lack of local fishing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was a big part of their diet, and now it's you know, it's it's um, mm. it, it's it's tricky. To, it's tricky to get. They were so concerned about it. One guy went out. He fished for three days, caught nothing. And then fi- on the on the day that I arrived, he finally caught two fish. Great. Do you know, that, you know? So is that climate well, change and or fishing, or is it fin- more one no, the, or the they, other? They were saying it was the fishing. They were saying that they, right. they, they were saying that there's, you know, that um, yeah, that they just said the fishing grounds have just been fished out by these massive trawlers that just go through and just. Yeah. 26, past, 26 past 4, the panel, uh, RNZ National. Nice to have your company this afternoon. I did want to come to this, though. There's already been a bitter response uh, to this. Should you be able to pass comment on someone else's children if you feel comment is warranted? I'm talking about uh, Jimmy McCaw here, who stood up to critics over taking her children for a walk in the rain. Gemma took her kids to the park in rainy Canterbury weather and said that she was rebuked for taking them out in the rain. Uh, quoting to the person this morning who criticised me for being out in the pouring rain with my kids, please know I am just a mum trying to do my best by getting some fresh air on a day like this. They were all safe and warm, and despite Charlotte not wanting to wear her jacket, it was with me under the pram. So I wanted to go round the panel. Sometimes a throwaway comment can really get under the skin. Uh, Ali Jones? 
Well, I don't think that Charlotte should have had any say in whether she wore her jacket or not. I think that should have been Gemma's say, and she shouldn't have been allowed out if she wasn't wearing a jacket. But anyway, uh, my well, first reaction was what? Well, what? you know, kids, kids don't um, get to decide. No, well, they, no, they do no. get to decide. No, they don't. If you want to go out, you put your jacket on, Charlotte, you, and it's not up to you. Anyway, by the by, my first reaction was, come on, Gemma, no need to turn this into a social media event, right? She She's a powerful woman. She's an influencer. She's got a lot of followers. But then I thought back to what I would have felt, if, um, certainly not an influencer, when mine was small. If someone had said something like that to me, I would have been actually quite upset. And she mentioned sleep deprivation and exhaustion, and that would have only added to it. I do think that this is a bit of a busybody thing. I think people should not be frightened of speaking up if they see something, but it's degrees, right? You know, if she'd been hitting her kids or well, you you speak know, up. bullying her kids, absolutely. But I don't know whether not wearing a coat or being in the rain warrants someone, a busybody, saying, oh, I think you should really make sure your kids are warm and dry. I don't think that's anyone's business, and it wasn't serious well, enough, I think, to warrant a comment. Is it, is it just taking it – are we taking it the wrong way? It's just a comment from – I mean, you know, should we learn to accept, Ali, comments from, if we say it takes a village to raise a child, maybe someone from the wider village metaphorically is saying, your kid is going to catch a cold, put a jacket on. No, bugger off, actually. I think that's got no, that's no one's business but your own. Now, I wasn't there and you, you weren't there either, none of us were, so we don't know what the statement was and how it was actually said so we've got to keep that in mind but no it's no one's business but if there is a degree of hurt damage something serious going on yes of course speak up but no this is just over the top martin bosley it takes a village to raise a child so if that's the case um uh, metaphorically another uh, member of the village is saying you know what your kid looks cold please go inside now Oh, well, the village did did help me raise my child. I was a single parent for a long time, um, and um, and I've, my, my daughter's turned out to be an amazing kid. Um, but I think like leave 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 Jim and McCoy alone. Leave any mother alone that's doing this. You know, it's a, kids love the rain and they love puddles and jumping around in them. And even if that kid had got a jacket on, it was still going to make a mess in the in the puddles. And it was going to get wet. And they go home and they get dry and they have a hot bath or whatever. And you know, no harm done. This was like an opportunity to get out, get some fresh air. And I think keep it to yourself. Yeah, if if if, if Gemma had been smacking the kid and saying, "Put your jacket on," and a bit of well, handy advice, then maybe you might want to step in and go, "Hey, that's not cool." Here's, here's a personal story. Um, so uh, about five weeks ago, taking my taking little Junior to school, he's got a big bag. Uh, he had a, a full water bottle, uh, a, a lunchbox, um, a couple of books. And uh, well, that's cruelty to children. An older, an old, a parent <laughs> or a, parent, a grandmother came back and said, "Gosh, um, that's a very heavy bag for a little boy. Yeah. Um, do you think you want to have a think about that around his, for his back issues?" <gasps> La- Yep, but and I thought, <laughs> yep, but okay, address that to the school. But I okay. think, yeah, but, but, I, then I, but then I thought, hang on, does she have a point? So yeah. I thought about it for a week. And then I decided to just put a third of uh, water in the drink bottle alley. Did you so, say anything at the time, Wallace? No, I, I was shocked. I was shocked. I didn't know what to yeah. say. This is we don't um, know what to say, right? We're always taken aback, and we, we think about what we should have said after the yeah. event. But my point being is, was she right? Should I be thinking about the weight of that bag? You see what I'm saying? No, it's up to you, and you're not a you're not an idiot. You've got a brain in your head. Uh, you've been raising little Junior for long enough. 
you should be quite well. I would have said, look, thanks very much for your advice. I'll, I'll take it under advisement. In some countries, Wallace, little Wallace is down the mines already working. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know? All right. Yep. Yeah, sure. Uh, you're on the panel. Your thoughts on that. And by the way, the song was brought. What is the song? I'm looking to the sky to save me, looking for a sign of life, looking for something to help me burn out bright. Text me 2101.